Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, do you believe in Sasquatch? Do you believe in Bigfoot? Do you believe in Bigfoot? Do you believe in Yeti? You're um, dodging the question. I know. Song. I know. As a kid, I really, really, really wanted Bigfoot to be real. I have to say, I, I feel pretty skeptical about the Yeti, the Sasquatch, existing. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I, I always think back to the 2008 Georgia Bigfoot hoax, uh, particularly because that was my, I was, I had pretty much just started at How Stuff Works. Mm-hmm. So my life suddenly had a lot more science in it than, uh, than ever before because it wasn't just stuff I was reading on the side. Uh, it was my job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I'm, you know, immersed in science and suddenly the, the, all over the internet and on the TVs, it was like a slow news week, I think. Um, there, there are all these stories out of Georgia. The state we are in, mm-hmm. um, where apparently a car salesman by the name of Rick Dyer and uh, a then police officer by the name of Matt uh, Witten claimed to have a Bigfoot corpse on ice in a cooler. Yeah, and it was and it just escalated from there. It became there was a news conference in California, and for a brief little sliver of time there, it it was it was kind of. To be cliche, it was an amazing time to be alive because because <laughs> it seemed possible that we might be about to know for sure that there are, are Sasquatches out there, that there are Bigfoots, uh, skunk apes, whatever you want, you want to call them. And, uh, and even though I doubted it, I, I was, I, I gave in to the temptation to, to really want to believe. And of course, then we found out that it was just a Sasquatch costume stuffed with possum roadkill and slaughterhouse leftovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but for just a little while, it captured our imagination. That, you know, to what degree did they think they were going to pull that off? That's what I'm wondering. Like, why go through the trouble of stuffing the innards? <laughs> With, with leftover meats and well, I I was reading about it. And I've I've read uh, interpretations where it was just kind of like a joke that got out of control mm-hmm. um, and, and quickly was just out of hand. I've also read some criticisms that say that uh, one of the individuals involved was really hoping to to uh, to, to get some more business for uh, sort of wilderness tours in the yeah. area. So uh, you know, a little column A, a little column B, and maybe they themselves were kind of given into the the the, the lust for Sasquatch reality as well. Well, I think of the, the beginnings, at least in terms of, of the of arresting the public's imagination on this topic, is being that I think it's 1964 16-millimeter footage that was shot by Roger Patterson and Bob Gillen. Excuse me, it was in 1967. Yes. And everybody's probably familiar with this grainy black-and-white footage. Yeah, and but you know the thing is, if you're looking for it on YouTube, there's so many different versions of it. Yeah. It's easy to... To, to lose track of the original, mm-hmm. which I'll be sure to uh, to share uh, when this publishes. But the original is really haunting because, like, the first several minutes of it are just dudes riding around on horseback. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just looking at the woods, and there's that click, 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 uh, you know, uh, kind of sound as the, the film uh, uh, you know, processes through. And then you see this creature sort of, you know, doing that uh, that saunter a- across the, uh, the the clearing in the woods. And uh, and it's been parodied so many times that it, it tends to lose any kind of impact on a modern viewer. Yeah. But I find going back to that original film and, and watching it from the beginning and then having the, the, the mysterious creature gradually appear, you recapture perhaps some of the original excitement people found in that footage. Yeah, I mean, because what you're talking about is that half-human, half-ape-like creature just ambling 
out of a stream bed in uh, Six Rivers National Forest in Northern California. As you say, it's not, you know, they're just kind of moving along there on horseback. It's mm-hmm. the footage is just sort of. Oh, look here, nature. Although they, they are going after the Sasquatch. That is what their intent yes. was when they were actually filming this. Yes, that's certainly worth noting. It's not just a matter of, oh, and then there's a Sasquatch. And we happen to see the Sasquatch. So, of course, uh, there's, there's much debate about this film, whether or not it's actually someone in a gorilla suit. Um, or, and we, we're not going to get into all of these sort of whether or not this film is... Um, Real or not. Because people are still analyzing it and, yeah. and making arguments in both directions. I do want to say real quick, the term Sasquatch is a Salish word uh, from the Salish people and other Native American uh, peoples of the Alaskan Yukon and parts of British Columbia, and it essentially means wild man. Uh, the, but there are also like uh, over 150 different local names for this uh, shaggy bipedal creature. And uh, in the original myths, they would also say that it could be 15 feet high. Nowadays, when people are talking about Sasquatch, they tend to make an argument more in the, like, the seven to nine foot range. Yeah, and you, this has been reported all over the world. Yeah, you have some variation of it. Except for Antarctica. Well, yeah, except for Antarctica. <laughs> but still, you have, you have, you have the Yetis in the Himalayas, the skunk apes in Arkansas, Mississippi. You have the Siberian Almasti. You have the, uh, the Chinese Yiren or wild man. Um, you have the Cherokee Sul Kalu. Anywhere you look, and, and when you get into the wild man myths too, the idea that there are wild men in the mm-hmm. forest, uh, you go back to 13th through 16th century Europeans, they believed in wild men in the woods. Uh, and then there's a, you can find a compelling argument that essentially the Bigfoot myth takes over for us as we, uh, as we encounter Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, the, the idea that, uh, that we couldn't possibly be werewolves anymore, that the werewolf can no longer oh, be the go-to representation of our bestial shadow self. Instead, we need this other form. Okay, so Darwin came online and people were like, all right, here's the deal. Werewolves, they're out. Yeti's in. Yeah, we're not really, we're not descended from wolves. Yeah. We're descended from apes, and so therefore, uh, an ape is a better avatar for our bestial self. But then again, like I say, people were, have, were seeing, uh, and reporting wild men in the woods long before Darwin came around. So I don't think it's the most compelling argument, but it's interesting to think about. So the idea of a Sasquatch is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is I feel like it's really come to symbolize humans' penchant for logical fallacies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, believers in Bigfoot would claim that the absence of hard evidence of Bigfoot is not evidence that Bigfoot does not exist. This is the argument, right? And this has all kind of created this cottage industry of sincerely earnest people trying to ferret out the truth among pranksters and hoaxes. So it sort of muddies all the water here. Yeah, you have people that really want to believe and and want to find actual proof and prove it. You have people who want to believe and are willing to just cling to whatever. You have people who just want to make a hoax. And then you have people who really want to apply the rigors of, of science to it or are already of the opinion that we've already done that and there are more pressing things to consider. Right. In the absence, again, of any body, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then I think you can't help to, to think that somehow in all of this, it sort of stirs that childlike wonder, right? Yeah. And that, you know, there's somewhere inside of us, there's just an iota of hope that this 9 to 12 foot hairy mammal 
you know, peaceably roams the hinterlands, right? And it's, I think about it as being sort of a, a mashup between Chewbacca and where the wild things are. These are these are things from my youth and from my memory and my imagination all embodied in what Bigfoot is. Yeah, because the idea is that there is this almost magical creature. I mean, n- n- most no one out there that's, you know, a Sasquatch enthusiast is saying it's a magical creature. They're saying it's a natural creature. But there's mm-hmm. something magical about the idea that there is this uh, this cousin of humanity that still lives wild and naked and furry in portions of the world that we haven't turned into a parking lot yet. Right. And that they're so good at what they're doing that we have really no proof that they're there. That they're, they're almost like a, a forest god uh, living in the woods. And while there are stories out there of of a, of a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot or what have you being aggressive towards humans, mm-hmm. most of the encounters you seem to to come across they're more mundane, they're more peaceful, and you see these uh, representations. For instance, uh, the Melba Ketchum Global Sasquatch Foundation. We'll discuss that a little later on. Mm-hmm. But their emblem is is this wonderful uh, cheesy <laughs> emblem of the planet Earth. And then there's the outline of a Sasquatch on there, and the Sasquatch is raising one hand, uh, kind of like the the figure on the Voyager That's Golden Plate. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, sort of I come in peace, uh, sort of thing. And I, 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 I laugh at the image, but it does sum up. I feel like a lot of the the hopes uh, and and dreams out there when it comes to belief or the the desire to believe in a Sasquatch. Uh, it's a little bit of a Kauai hangover. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about the World Wildlife Fund, and I believe their logo is a panda. Which is super and cuddly. But if you go up to a, a panda, it will maul you, right? <laughs> yeah. So, again, these are ideas about things that exist, uh, that don't exist, perhaps exist. And for me, what is, again, interesting about all of this is that it, it kind of brings up this question of could there be a species of primate behind these legends? So not necessarily... Sasquatch or Yeti as we, we think of it, but mm-hmm. maybe something to this. That's the question that, that is interesting about this. Yeah, and it is a reasonable question. It's, it's easy to get distracted by all of the, the nonsense out there. Mm-hmm. You, you lose sight of the fact that, okay, a nine-foot gigantopithecus creature did exist mm-hmm. uh, you know, in prehistoric times, that we do have gorillas to this day. So, and, and there are portions of the world that uh, that are that are more uh, of a wilderness, uh, yeah. particularly looking in like northern uh, North America, the Siberian region, uh, certainly uh, parts of the Himalayas, uh, you know, deep jungles. There are places where you could conceivably have uh, a species, even a, a nine foot tall uh, eight man species, living outside of a human understanding. Doubtful, but possible. Doubtful, Doubtful but, possible. But, but possible, yeah. You're, so, you're not arguing of flying unicorns. You're arguing something that tends to make sense uh, based on what we know about the natural world. In 2002, the world's perhaps most famous primatologist, Jane Goodall, came out as a, I guess you could say, Bigfoot enthusiast. Yes. If not someone who, who really hopes that this is the case. And uh, so she, she does admit to being a romantic and having very much a, a, a heartfelt feeling about this. She does. She she said during the interview with Ira Flatow of NPR Science uh, Friday that, that she was sure of it. Now, she's just kind of talking off, off the cuff here yeah. in this interview. Yeah, she's not presenting a paper on it. She's just, they said, hey, Bigfoot, what do you say? The happening. She was like, oh, hey. Um, and so this is what she said. She said, I've talked to so many Native Americans who all describe the same sounds 
two who have seen them. I've probably got about, oh, 30 books that have come from different parts of the world, from China, from all over the place. And there was a little tiny snippet in the newspaper just last, last week, which says that British scientists have found what they believed to be a Yeti hare and that the scientists in the Natural History Museum in London couldn't identify it as any known animal. So, and we'll discuss more about DNA in a little bit. Uh, but she goes, as you say, on to say that she is a romantic. She, she, um, she also says it's strange that there has never been a single authentic hide or hair of the Bigfoot. So she is acknowledging in a skeptical way, like, we don't really have the evidence. But at the heart of this, again, I think is that childlike wonder of like, well, maybe it could be so. Yeah. Now, another individual that, uh, that, that came up when we were looking at, uh, actual, uh, uh, legitimate, learned individual scientists who are interested in the, the possible existence of Bigfoot is Jeff Meldrum. Now, uh, Jeff Meldrum is Associate Professor of Anatomy and Anthropology at Idaho State University. Uh, he's a research associate at the Idaho, Idaho Museum of Natural History, and he's uh, his areas of research are primate functional morphography, mm-hmm. paleontology, but also cryptozoology as well. Now, um, cryptozoology... For anyone who isn't familiar with the term, we have zoology, which is dealing with actual uh, creatures that are known to exist, documented. Mm-hmm. Cryptozoology is concerned with creatures that we do not know actually exist. They're uh, you know, your things like your Loch Ness monsters, your, your your Bigfoot monster, what have you. So Meldrum is interested in cryptozoology. He's interested in Bigfoot, mm-hmm. but he is also he also has the, the the science chops to back it up. He he is is well uh, informed about how the body of a large primate works and would work uh, if it were in the form of a Sasquatch. That's right, because he knows all about primate locomotion, uh, human locomotion, and so he has analyzed these footprints, and he thinks that um, the way that the, the foot seems to be uh, designed is that it's, it very well may be a divergent species. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's interesting. Um, he gets a lot of flack for this, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah, as I imagine he would. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's out there on the record saying, look, it's not just the footprints. I've examined that footage um, from 1967. And he says, you can see muscle movements. You can see the shoulder blade slide under the skin. You can see tendons attaching to joints and so forth. He says the clarity is really much better than most people have acknowledged in the past. So, again, he's talking about that iconic film footage. Which which I do, after researching this podcast, I do agree that, that we tend to just dismiss that footage these days because it has been lampooned so much and it is has been ridiculed and it's really become a joke and i'm not saying if you look back at it you it's definitely going to convince you or anything Mm -hmm. but if you if you just put all that aside all your all these preconceived notions and you watch the footage fake or not it's it's far more effective uh than we often give it credit I agree. I also wanted to point out uh, Gigantopithecus, uh, the giant ape that you had discussed. This is this kind of gives us a clue about the limits of primate morphology, right? Mm-hmm. So there is the possibility that you could have a nine-foot-tall mammal by three feet wide. That you can't say that's not a possibility. It's, we know that this is a uh, a kind of morphology that has existed in the past. However, Michael Shermer will talk about these these different animals that we have discovered 
And he will say that the reason cryptids merit our attention is that enough successful discoveries have been made by scientists based on local anecdotes and folklore that we cannot dismiss all claims a priori. So he says the most famous examples include the gorilla, actually, in 1847. Mm -hmm. Um, You see the okapi, that was a short-necked relative of the giraffe, Komodo dragon in 1912, the bonobo. uh, It goes on and on and on. But, he says, there is one thing that is common, a common thread in all these discoveries. They have a body. They have a body. They're able to produce it. Yeah. Like like another one he mentions, of course, is cryptozoologists love to point at the 1938 uh, discovery of a coelacan. That's uh, in a species of archaic-looking fish, and that we used to think it had gone extinct in the Cretaceous period, and then here it is. But, to his point, we had a coelacan to show off. Here's a gorilla. Here's a coelacan. Here's a panda. And as Schirmer points out in a 2003 essay for Scientific American, uh, that's the big thing here. Show me the body. Where is the body? Because anytime we're classifying a new uh, species, we need a holotype. We need the body of the creature. We need a specimen by which uh, to go on to say, here is what we found, and here is another one. Oh, we can con- we can compare uh, uh, the DNA here. We can compare the morphology of these two species and say, this is this, and it's not these other specimens. Okay, so we've discussed a bit about the case for the existence of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti. Uh, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we will talk about the case against it. All right, we're back. Uh, you know, and I want to mention real quick that uh, Meldrum, when he's talking about uh, about tracks and mm-hmm. footprints and, and even the uh, uh, that famous uh, bit of footage, uh, he, he's really all about the Sasquatch. And he even admits that the case for the Yeti in the Himalayas is, is far uh, less uh, impressive. Yeah, and we'll get a bit into the Yeti and the Himalayas and the reasons why uh, that is problematic in a moment. But uh, let's go back to this idea of, you know, show us the body or show us some sort of evidence that that gives us an idea that this species exists yeah it, to um, to Jane Goodall's point it it is incredible that if this creature were to actually exist that we don't have any proof of it that we don't have bodies mm-hmm. that we don't have a significant uh, uh, samples of their anatomy uh, now the, the that would have in my mind that tends to lead to the answer well that's because they don't exist uh, and and uh, or if they did exist they have not existed in a very long time mm-hmm but, uh, but yeah, what are we, what are we to make of that? Because it's, because especially now, it's one thing to say, uh, you know, early 20th century, but now this is the 21st century. There are more humans around than ever before, and just about all of them have a camera on them, because that's a, the other, that's a whole other issue, the, 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 the camera footage. But just about everyone has a camera. We're, we're out all over the place. Uh, why haven't we discovered a body? Well, I will play devil's advocate for just one second okay. and say that, you know, every once in a while you get the undiscovered tribe, right? So you know that there are pockets of people out there, maybe even a new species that just has not been discovered yet in the rainforest in uh, the Amazon between 2010 and 2013. There were 441 species of plants and animals that were discovered. How many of them were nine feet tall? That's the problem. Yeah, we're talking about a big creature that would uh, would need a larger area in which to roam. Uh, and, And we just haven't seen it. We have not seen it happen. Again, not saying it. 
it's impossible for it to exist. But when you start looking at the details, the size of the creature, uh, how much space it would need, and, uh, and, and the various parts of the world in which it's reported to have been witnessed, then I feel like the case just grows less and less impressive. But then you have someone like Melba Ketchum who is saying, hey, here is some possible proof, or even saying there is proof yeah. that this species exists. Yes, Texan veterinarian uh, Dr. Melba S. Ketchum uh, contends that her research team's five-year genome sequencing study of 122 alleged Bigfoot DNA samples, those are tufts of hair and whatnot that have been uh, collected by uh, by Bigfoot hair hunters uh, mm-hmm. out there in the wild. Uh, anyway, she says that uh, she claims that uh, their findings point to a hybrid species that split from Homo sapiens and an unknown hominid species some 13,000 years ago. Now, she published her results. Yes. Uh, now, you you probably have not heard of the scientific journal that published them. Uh, De Novo Scientific Journal is what it's called, uh, because it, it did not exist uh, before publishing mm-hmm. uh, this study. And her Ketchum study is the only study that it has ever published. Um, so it was not peer-reviewed. It did not show up in any of the, the normal scientific journals that we would mention on this, this podcast. So that's kind of a red flag. And uh, critics uh, have charged that her samples were likely contaminated because you have inexperienced evidence gatherers out there that are in, end up introducing their own DNA onto the animal samples that they bring in. They're sneezing, they're coughing, they're breathing heavily, what have you. They br- so they bring in a contaminated sample, which then, uh, once it's analyzed, you end up with confusing and misleading results. So, again, the problem with this is starting at the assumption that um, that the animal exists, right? Right. And, and, and that's clear from the get-go just by, you know, just go to her website, look yeah. at the, the logo, look at the mission statement of the organization, and you see that, that they, have, they have an intention in mind. Yeah, and Daniel Loxon, he's a co-author of the book Abominable Science, Origins of the Yeti, Nessie, and other famous cryptids, says, quote, a scientist generally starts with a conservative working assumption that proposed new ideas are not true. This is so important, right? We've talked about this over and over again. Or that hypothetical new entities do not exist and then revises her probability estimate upwards only when the evidence forces her to do so. He says a pseudoscientist, on the other hand, typically starts with the assumption that a novel proposal seems to be true and then revises her probability downward as the evidence leaves her no choice if she is willing to surrender the possibility to do to any degree at all. So we've talked about cognitive bias all the time, this idea that we continue to sort of uh, add weight to this argument that we really want to be true, mm-hmm. and we begin to assemble patterns where sometimes there are none. Exactly. So, yeah, you, you go into, uh, into this kind of study with the cryptozoologist mindset with the idea that I really want the Bigfoot to, 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 be, to exist, then that ends up, I mean, that, that's the, the mission statement for the study. That ends up uh, skewing the entire study. So no, much, no, no matter how much science you throw in after the fact, you've already uh, turned the steering wheel off the road. All right, so we, we've talked about the, you know, things that have existed, been discovered, the body showed up. Um, what if... What if the species is, it does exist, but it's not what we think it is? There's another explanation. Yes, and this uh, this explanation just uh, recently uh, came out in the news, uh, and it has to do with Oxford University geneticist Brian Sykes. Uh, now, Sykes, uh, his investigations are going to be featured in a, an upcoming Channel 4 documentary series. He's writing a book um, called uh, The Yeti Enigma, a DNA detective story. And basically, uh, he put out the call and said, all right, 
you have samples of your Yetis, your Sasquatches, what have you, mm-hmm. send them to me, and, and we and we will analyze them. We will look at the DNA evidence here, and, uh, and, and, and then you can stop complaining about scientists not listening to your Bigfoot stories, mm-hmm. because I'm here to listen. Just send me the stuff, right? So... They took uh, two of the more promising samples of uh, what were supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, supposed to be Yeti uh, hair, uh, Yeti uh, Yeti materials, mm-hmm. uh, and they they analyzed them, and what they found was pretty incredible, though not incredible in the way that a cryptozoologist would want it to be. No, because it, again, here's the thing about science is that in the scientific method, sometimes it yields results that you never imagined, or right? Completely different than what you thought would happen. So yeah, he called through the Gen Bank database and he found that two samples were a 100% match with the DNA of an ancient polar bear from Svalbard, Norway and that polar bear lived some 120,000 to 40,000 years ago just when the brown bear and the polar bear were diverging as a separate species. So there you go. One possible uh, one possible explanation for the uh, belief in the yeti yeah, perhaps what uh, what people were experiencing all these uh, these years and and seeing and, and sharing stories about, yeah. and passing down from generation to generation, it actually uh, had to do with a bear that lived a, a species of polar bear that uh, lived in the region. Yeah, now he said that we shouldn't take these results and, and assume that ancient polar bears are wandering around the Himalayas. No. Um, but he did say that perhaps the yeti could be this hybrid of polar bear and brown bear, essentially a new species of animal. Um, he has not published his research yet. It's up for peer review. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who are criticizing it only because of the logistics, saying that what we know of polar bears, we know that um, they would have a hard time surviving in the Himalayas. Right. And Svalbard is a long ways away from uh, the Himalayas. Right. So there there are aspects to it that I think need to be sussed out. But it's interesting. Well, I have a theory here. Yeah. The Yetis existed and they used polar bears imported from Svalbard as uh-huh. their steeds. So they rode around on them and, uh, you know, waged war and, and tended their mountain farms. I was just thinking maybe they used them as pelts and made little coats to put over their yeah. own hairy bodies. Or maybe they were they had naked bodies. Oh. Yeah. Or it may Very be clever. And maybe they were actually short, more human sized. Maybe they were just they were just dudes. So they were <laughs> like, like fancy two of them. Clothing. So they were like one was on the other's shoulders yes. and then they had a little polar bear suit that they pulled over it. It's, it sounds pretty good to me. Okay. Yeah. Peer reviewed, my friend. Yeah, it's officially peer reviewed. All right, so there you have it. A brief uh, entry into the world of the Sasquatch, the Bigfoot, the Yeti, etc. Obviously, this is a topic that one can spend a lot of time on. You can spend a lot of time on it just on the scientific side of things. And if you want to uh, wander over into the, uh, the the non-scientific side of things, uh, there's even more time to be wasted. So if you want to spend more time with this topic, uh, I would recommend you check out uh, our sister podcast and, uh, and video series, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Uh, they frequently come back to the Bigfoot issue, mm-hmm. and they're going to approach it from a, a, a less skeptic uh, standpoint, but uh, but not like a completely nutty standpoint either. No, and I think they, they will bring up some very interesting ideas, uh, actually uh, point and counterpoint ideas. So yeah. check it out. Yeah. All right, and if you want to talk to us about Bigfoot, we would love to hear from you. Uh, seriously, if you have... 
uh, I mean, a lot of the Bigfoot story, a lot of the, the Yeti story, uh, it, it, a lot of it comes down to personal encounters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we've talked before in the past about the, the flawed nature of memory, the flawed nature of paranormal experience. Uh, Michael Shermer that we mentioned earlier, who was talking about, uh, uh, you know, his skepticism uh, regarding uh, the Bigfoot myth. I mean, he himself had a paranormal experience uh, during a, a bike marathon in which he saw uh, extraterrestrials and that mm-hmm. kind of that led to his examination of well why did i see that what led to that experience because i know it wasn't aliens and 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 so his entire career as a skeptic uh, author has has risen from that so right cuz he was under extreme physical duress yeah, extreme at the time. physical physical duress and he had that cultural script already in mm-hmm. mind so if you have a story about bigfoot send it to us we're not going to pick it to pieces on the air we're not going to call you foolish or anything because uh, again i really want I would really wish that this were true. And and even if there is no such thing as as a Bigfoot, experiences of the Bigfoot are are real. Those do occur. Like, we do have paranormal experiences, even if the reason uh, for them occurring lies entirely within the natural world. So share your stories with us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Google+, all of those. And you can always drop us a line, and you can do so at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.